How are we supposed to live our daily lives if our faith in Jesus is real? Now, if God saves us as a free gift of grace, dependent on Jesus' death on the cross, does he really care what we do after we accept him? Can we do whatever we want, knowing that we'll be forgiven? And on a more serious note, what if, after we've trusted Jesus as our Savior, we really want to live a life that pleases him? How do we do that? Hi, I'm Yvonne Prynne, and welcome to this special edition of Bible 805. To answer the questions that I just asked is vitally important for every Christian. If we believe, as the Bible clearly teaches, that one day each of us will stand before Jesus to give an account of our lives. Though we're saved from eternal death by the grace of Jesus, he does have expectations of how we should live after we accept the gift of salvation. And that's what this podcast is all about. Now, I'm doing this special edition because I recently learned some things that I found so helpful in my personal Christian life that I wanted to share it. Now, the context for this lesson is that in addition to teaching the ongoing class of going through the Bible chronologically, which I do each Sunday at our church, and then that, of course, results in the podcast on Bible805.com, I also have the privilege of teaching our pastor's weekly Bible study when he's away. Now, currently, he's on his summer vacation, and the study is going through the Book of Romans. Now, I'm, I'm usually not easily intimidated by teaching assignments. I welcome them of all sorts. But Romans is a really challenging book. And when I found out the passages that I was going to be covering, I spent many hours in study thinking about them and asking the Lord, as I do in all my lessons, What is it that you want me to learn and to teach your people in this lesson? I always consult a lot of commentaries and do all kinds of study, but I want a fresh word from the Lord. You know, what do you really want me to help people with? And the answers to my prayers helped me immensely in the practical living of my Christian life. And I'm going to be sharing some very personal things about that. I was so excited about these things that I wanted to do a special podcast to share with you what I've learned. The section assigned to me to teach was Romans 6. Now last week at church I taught Romans 6 1 through 14 and in that section it talks about the reality that we're dead to sin and alive to Christ. Now this week's lesson and the one that I'm really excited about and the one that this podcast is based on is Romans 6 15 through 23 and I've titled this lesson how to daily live a life pleasing to God what all the theology about dying to sin really means. Now, as stated, the first part of the chapter of Romans 6 talks about us being dead to sin and alive to Christ. And then it goes on in verses 15 to 23 to say we're slaves to righteousness. Now, on the surface, these words don't need a whole lot of interpretation. Dead to sin, alive to righteousness. Okay, yeah, that makes makes sense. But honestly, as I thought about it, I thought I have no idea what it really means. I have no idea how in the world to make it practical in my daily life. All of this talk about being dead to sin and all of that. That didn't seem to be my experience. I didn't know if this was some mystical thing you were supposed to go through or some emotional thing you worked yourself up to. Or I, you know, I really didn't know. Now there's a lot of theology there, 
but our relationship and that and the theology is important it's tremendously important but our relationship with Jesus is much more than merely theology it's a relationship as i just said so after lots of prayer and study and thinking about it i think the lord really helped me find some very practical answers now as part of my study i do want to give credit where credit is due i read a lot of different commentaries and articles and all sorts of things like that one that i used quite a bit and that really directed my my thinking was the one hard sayings of the Bible by Kaiser, Davids, Bruce, and Branch. I'll try to list different things, different resources in the notes, but I won't always give a verbal citation in the podcast because that can get a little bit awkward. Now I'd like to read to you the passage and then we'll talk about it. Okay, I'm going to be re- reading Romans 6, 15 through 23 in the NIV. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this entire passage I think can be summed up in the idea that, as he said many times in it, we're dead to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin and we are challenged to be slaves to righteousness in our everyday lives. Now the words here are very obvious. There isn't a lot of lengthy explanation needed really here. Dead to sin, alive to righteousness previously slaves to sin, now supposed to be a slave to righteousness. Now, but what in the world, you know, again, I kept going back saying, but but what does that mean? What does that mean? I know I'm a Christian. I know Jesus saved me. But when I mouth off, when I get angry or frustrated, sin certainly doesn't seem to be dead in me. So why does it bubble up when I get upset? Um, is Jesus not doing what he's supposed to do? Is this dead to sin thing not really working for me? Now, I mean, I was really concerned about it. This isn't just an intellectual exercise. And I got so excited after I did a good bit of study that and I'm going to share the results with you. Now, I'm going to try to explain it in two ways. The first one is going to be a little bit technical. Now, this involves the use of how uh, the words are used in the Greek language. And so it's a little bit technical. This is the theological foundation. This won't take much time. It actually really makes a lot of sense. 
sense and it's pretty easy, but it's important. The second part of this podcast, and really the major part of it, which I will spend quite a bit of time on, are some practical illustrations. Because to me, we can understand all the theology that we can pack into our little brains, but it doesn't help us at all if it doesn't result in changed lives. I want to make what the theology teaches us very practical and doable. So I'm going to give you a number of illustrations that I hope will change your life the way it really has changed mine as I've learned these things. First of all, the technical understanding of the Greek. Now, Greek is an extremely precise language. It has moods, it has tenses that are far more fine-tuned than what we have in English. In most instances, the English and other languages that we have, in in most cases, the translation is useful enough. It it makes sense of complex things. Um, we, We understand it. But In some instances, really drilling down into the Greek is very useful, and this is one of those places. Now, listen carefully. We're going to take the chapter 6 as a whole because we really need to look at it as a whole to understand this second part. In the first part of chapter 6, the passages that talk about us being dead in Christ are in what in Greek is called the indicative mood. Now, in the Greek language, when something is the, in the indicative mood, it's used to make factual assertions. Paul is saying, in essence, that it is a fact that believers are dead to sin, freed from sin, and crucified with Christ. That is because of what Christ has done. We didn't do it. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. But when we accepted it, and our acceptance of it was illustrated, not brought about by, but illustrated in our baptism, that became a fact. We are, once we became a Christian, we're dead to sin. But, and this is where it's really cool, in the second part of the chapter, in Romans six fifteen through 23, the passage that we're looking at right now, the Greek language shifts when it talks about the idea that believers might know that they're no longer enslaved to sin and might walk in the newness of life. These statements are in the subjunctive mood. Now, the subjunctive mood is the mood of possibility and potentiality. The actions described here may or may not occur. Now, you see, this is really the key to understanding the passage, and I'm going to have many, many examples in a few minutes, but basically, here's what what it says. Our position in Christ, where we're dead to sin, we're alive to him because of his death and resurrection, and again, symbolized by, but not the cause of it, baptism, that again, that we're dead to sin, it is a fact. It is a present an eternal reality. Because we are dead to sin, we do not pay the penalty for sin. Jesus paid for that. That is a fact. However, for us to live a life of growing freedom from sin, to no longer be enslaved to sin in practical ways, is only present as a possibility that must be actualized. Does that make sense? Now, I'm going to give some more examples that that do, but I think this will really help. It can be summed up by, let's look at two contrasting verses from each section. The first one, he who has died is free from sin. That's Romans 6, 7. That's in the indicative mood. That's a fact. But then alongside of it, it says, let not 
sin therefore reign. That is Romans 6.12, and that's in the subjunctive mood. That's potential. Now, it's still a bit of a challenge, I know. And how can we be commanded to do something that supposedly has already happened? Well, the rest of the chapter then goes on to talk about how we're supposed to live in Christ. And the hard sayings of the Bible summarizes it in this way. The new life, says Paul, has become both a reality and a possibility. Romans six twelve through 23 talks about the practical outworking of what was a fact accomplished by Christ's death. Or to put it another way, there is the reality that we are dead to sin in Christ. But the other reality is that we must live in newness of life, that this must be actualized in our daily lives. This is what he talks about when we need to become slaves of righteousness that leads to holiness. Now, I got to tell you, even what I just said, and even what I studied and all that, I thought still doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, I understand that was a fact, this is potential, but I think these illustrations will help make it, I really trust, really kind of crystal clear. Um, These aren't mine, I've kind of expanded on them, but as I studied it more and more, a number of commentaries made the same illustration, and one of the best is the illustration of marriage. There is the factual, imperative level of the marriage ceremony. You go through the marriage ceremony, you're married. The ceremony takes place, the couple is married. But next comes the practical outworking, the practical making of day-to-day commitments of the marriage. C.S. Lewis described this in a wonderful way. He says, there's the possibility of disappointment on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when lovers get married and begin the real task of learning to live together. There is the trans there is the transition from daydreaming aspiration to laborious doing. And I really like that statement. Again, in every relationship, there must constantly be movement from affirmation to incarnation. This is what all relationships are about. Even if you're not married, any relationship, a friendship, a good working relationship, whatever it is, you have to work on it. In every marriage, there might be the fact of the marriage, but there are constant challenges, constant temptations. For example, a spouse may not be completely committed. He he or she might always be flirting, looking for extra emotional or sexual satisfaction outside from their spouse. Or it may not even be that blatant, but they may not be doing things daily to improve their marriage. I know something that my husband and I work on a lot is just speaking very kindly to each other, saying please and thank you and having manners at home. You want to take time to get to know the person. You want to spend time together. Now, you'll still be married if you don't do those things, but it'll be a pretty lousy marriage. There are many things that we need to do to have a satisfying marriage or friendship or any kind of relationship. Now, the spiritual analogies are obvious. If in our Christian life we love other things more than Jesus... If we love money or status or pride or security and other things, if we're not trusting the Lord, if we don't spend time in his word, then we're ignoring him. That would be sort of like in a marriage where you say, well, I don't want to listen to a word you have to say. I'm not, I'm not going to, I, I just don't want to hear a word you have to say. You know, when you don't read the Bible, that's kind of what you're saying to Jesus. And we're ignoring the one who we will walk with throughout life and death and eternity.
And if we push the idea, if we think we can get away with sin or intentionally, because we intentionally know that he's going to forgive us, now what kind of relationship does that build up? Now, it's kind of interesting, once I started thinking in this way, I thought, oh, so much of the Bible then makes sense. For example, in the Old Testament, God continuously uses the example of marriage, the analogy of marriage, to describe God's love for Israel. One of the really blatant ones, of course, is in Isaiah 54, 5, where he says, For your husband is your maker whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. And the entire book of Hosea, we just did that. Um, If you haven't listened to the podcast on that, that was just the previous podcast in us going through the Bible. But the, the book of Hosea is this extraordinary book that illustrates God's love for Israel. And he says very clearly in the book, I'm going to have you, Hosea, live out in your life my relationship with Israel. And he's, and what he has Hosea do, and it's really tough if you haven't read this story. He says, you are to go and marry a promiscuous woman. He does. They have three children. She leaves him and goes to be with another man. And then he takes her back. And this we don't know how often this happened. Finally, she sinks so low that her current lover is selling her as a slave. And God says, go and buy her back buy her out of the slave market, and restore her as your wife. What an incredible, incredible story of God as the faithful husband who loves his wife no matter what. And that he's saying, Israel, Israel, that's what you are to me. I love you. I will forgive you. I will bring you back no matter what. And that's what what God, he's he's using this example with us. We became married to him, so to speak, when we became a Christian. But what kind of a spouse are we being? Romans 6 goes on to talk about, What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. And in Hosea, it talks about how, well, let me just read you this passage in Hosea 9.10. First, it talks about how God blessed them. And then it said, when they turned to worship the Baals, the the pagan idols, and to live the lifestyle that followed from it, it says, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol, and they became as vile as the things they loved. So you see this whole idea of a marriage taking place in fact. That, again, is the picture of being dead to our sins, alive to Christ. But this entire passage then where Romans 6 goes on and says, then this is how you should live as no longer a slave to death, but a slave of righteousness. That's when you make the relationship real. That's when you work on growing the relationship, getting to know the Lord, getting to know his word. That's when you take the practical steps to grow in your Christian life. Now, there was another example that I thought was really good. I'm not going to go into every part of this example. I have on the website the link to this article, but there was a great article online that was an interview with the uh, platoon commander of a Navy SEAL platoon. And if you're not familiar with the Navy SEALs, they um, the 
the acronym SEAL is Sea, Air, and Land, and this is a very elite naval special warfare unit, and they are considered some of the best of the best. Even to be accepted into their training is considered quite an accomplishment. But in the class that the gentleman who spoke uh, came out of, and then he again became their commander, out of 256 men that entered the class, and again, they were the best of the best going into it, only 16 graduated. And he talks about what were the things that made them the best of the best. And I think this, again, these are some really great examples of on how if we want to live the Christian life well, things that we can do. Uh, first of all, he talked about the motivation for becoming a SEAL. And he said, um, many gentlemen would ask him, well, what, what do you need to do to prepare for it? Do you just need to build up your physical strength? Do you need to get your push-ups to a certain number? Um, you know, speed and running, what is it? And he said, no. That's not what is most important. What most, what's most important is how badly do you want it? How much do you want to become a SEAL? And they went on in the article, because this was talking about um, uh, just endurance and things like that, that many studies show that physical endurance really has very little to do with your musculature or your cardiovascular ability or whatever, but it has everything to do with the mental strength that you have if you think you can do it. And in the Christian life, I think it's very, very similar. It's not just a matter of checking off certain actions, but how badly do we really want to be dead to sin and alive to Christ? How much do we want to be, as it says, a slave to Christ in our lives? We need to decide that this is the most important thing to us. A SEAL cannot go into that rigorous training, think, ah, maybe I want to do it, maybe I don't. Maybe I'll, you know, train to be a SEAL part-time while I'm doing other things. No. If you want to be a SEAL, you go all in. And it's like that with how we serve the Lord. If we truly want to have the best possible relationship we can have with Him, we need to go all in. We need to put every area of our life under his control. Now, we can't do it all at once. And sometimes we have to pry things out of our little fingers one bit at a time. But this passage talks about dying to ourselves. And you don't, if you're dead, you're dead. You know, if you're dying to your own self-will and to you being in charge of your life, it's, it's a total surrender. But, of course, it goes on to say that's how you're going to really live. But um, how we get to that, let's keep talking about the SEALs. And another SEAL value is, he said, they plan ahead. They always plan ahead and focus on improvement. He said, the SEALs are the sort of people who prepare for the worst and practice ahead of time. These are the ones that survive. They've done the research or build the shelter or run the drills. They look for exits and imagine what they will do. These people don't deliberate during calamity because they've already done the deliberation other people around them are just now going through. And I think about this in the Christian life. I remember uh, one time hearing a sermon on when Peter was imprisoned. It said that he just fell asleep 
um, that he so trusted the Lord that in this difficult situation he could go to sleep. And of course, we know that the church was praying for him and he was released. But Peter didn't prepare for that peace by all of a sudden uh, getting into that situation and then saying, oh, what verses do I need to remember? No, he was prepared for that from three years of closely walking with the Lord and seeing him raised from the dead. And so there's a lot of things, too, that the analogies are great in our Christian life. We know at times we're going to be facing a difficult situation. Do we pray about it? Do we look at verses that might apply to it? Do we get good counsel from friends? What are we doing to be prepared for a situation? And then he talks about, too, how SEALs work hard to become experts in many areas. And it was kind of surprising what he said there. He said they do it by focusing on their weaknesses, not just on their strengths. I thought this is so different than always telling uh, young people, especially, oh, you're so wonderful, you're so wonderful, when a lot of times they aren't. When everybody gets first place, let's face it, not everybody was wonderful. Um, I I won't get sidetracked by uh, going down bunny trails on what that that does, but we know that's not really the best thing to do. But even if other people don't, if other people want to say, oh, you're just great, you're just great, we need to take it very seriously. And he said, what the SEALs do is after every mission, he said they spend 90% of the time discussing what they could do better next time. Here's his quote. He says, when you go out on a mission, you always acknowledge your successes. But much more important than that is that you take a hard look at your failures and are willing to accept criticism. One of the key strengths of SEAL teams is a culture of constant self-improvement. No one ever says that's good enough. On almost every real-world mission I was on, even the most successful ones, we spent 90% of our post-mission debrief focusing on what we did wrong or what we could have done better. And this idea of self-evaluation, of really thinking through what are we doing is very important. When I was reading that, this reminded me of one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. And this, and and I'm kind of going to go through here and give you an example of how I'm working this out in, in my life. Here's the quote, and then I'll tell you how I'm applying it. Surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. If there are rats in the cellar, you're most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. Now, I confess to quite a few rats in my cellar. I can, if I'm provoked, and there there's a situation in my regular job. I, I work actually two um, secular jobs to support the various my various ministry habits. Um, and there's, in this one particular instance, there are some situations and some people that I'm having a lot of trouble with. Now, the specifics aren't important, but let me just say that the rats appear with how I talk about them. Something comes up, and I just think it's wrong, and I mouth off about it. Now, most of it I just do with my husband. We, we actually work together in this one business, um, but I get frustrated, I get upset, and I say things that I shouldn't say. And I've become convicted that that's really wrong of me to do. I want to change it. And I'm really sort of trying to take that seal advice and whatever and look, just kind of debrief myself and look at how can I change this. Now, 
I realized that in this same analogy on dealing with the rats, I can't just avoid turning on the lights. I can't just say, oh, no, nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. Because there's some things that are wrong. Things come up. I can't ignore them. They won't go away. And when they happen, I react. And I tell my, and I can't tell myself, I'm not going to see any rats. I'm not going to see any rats. No matter what happens, I won't see the rats. For me, that's kind of like saying, I won't talk like that. I won't react. I just won't do that. And trying just by repeating it not to do it. Nope, that won't work. I have to turn on the lights, go down the stairs, and do the hard work of killing the rats. Now, in my instance, I know the seller of all this is my mouth. And where the rats reside, it's actually in my heart. Because remember, the Bible said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In my heart are bad attitudes. In my heart are angry words. And that's what I have to deal with. I have to look at situations that I, in many instances, I have no authority, I have no control, and my angry reactions will only make things worse through everybody there. So I need to think through, you know, how would the Lord have me respond? And I need to rehearse very positive ways of dealing with these things. And in many instances, just keep my mouth shut. Um, I find that the tranquility prayer that is used in AA is really helpful, where it says that I need to change what I can, accept what I can't, and have the wisdom to know the difference. And the many passages in the Bible that I've been thinking about a lot, where it talks about not letting corrupt communication come out of your mouth, whatever is good, kind, lovely, to think on that, the commands that our words be wise and healing. I've copied these out. I've copied out the verses on little index cards and I'm working on memorizing them and thinking through specifically how they apply. Now not only these verses because I'm not just working to be some kind of good goody two shoes and only says sweet and nice things and all that kind of thing. I'm trying to think about how to really react realistically in difficult situations and also too I'm looking in the Bible at passages where Jesus finally reached a place in certain situations where he pretty much said that's enough and I'm going to walk away. And various, um, there are numerous things in the Bible that are like this. When do we get in a situation where we walk away from something with gracefulness and a gracious way to do it? But, you know, how do we how do we react in different situations and really trying to, to look at biblical principles in these ways? But I'm working on it. It's in process, but at this present point in time, my mouth's Still needs a good bit of rat poison. So, um, but bit by bit, I do trust that the rat infestation in this case will uh, eventually die out, I hope. But there's a few more things that I've thought about that, um, two other quotes that I have found very helpful. Again, on I hope they'll help you also on how to deal with things in your Christian life. This is um, from a, a book by Aristotle that James Edwards commented on in his book on Romans. And he says, Aristotle offers the following insight on slavery and moral and spiritual matters. And he says, this is what he says, each action we do in life is voluntary, but with each voluntary action, our disposition becomes increasingly involuntary. We can continue, of course, to make choices, but over a period of time, those choices are influenced by a disposition which is increasingly determined either for better 
or for worse. Or And um, Edwards goes on to say, in Paul's words, you are slaves to the one you obey. And I've thought about this a lot as I get older, because there, I've been very fortunate to um, have older people in my life who were very godly people, and who, as they got older, and I'm sure it wasn't easy, um, the ones I'm thinking about had difficult lives, but as they got older, they got sweeter and kinder and more gentle. And then I've known other people, of course, and we've all known this, who as they get older, they get bitter and angry. And that doesn't come out of nowhere. It's the things that we train ourselves to be and to do while we're young enough and have enough self-control that we can shape our dispositions. That's what's going to come out as we get older and more frail and in many ways can't help who we are. C.S. Lewis, another quote by by him, and, and I, I know it's obvious to any of you that listen to me or have been around my teaching, I just do love what he says, but he, he has the way of just getting right to the point where he says, good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. Now, to kill my rats, I have got to be quiet. I have to pray for the situation. I can't lie to myself and say things aren't horrid when sometimes they are. But again, if I'm going to do something about them, I must do them in a way that's the best representative of Jesus. And if it's time to walk away, again, do it graciously and gracefully. So, I hope that helped just as a a little bit of an example on how I'm kind of dealing with these things. And it really helped me a lot because just the idea, oh, count it all dead. I'm going to count it dead that I don't get mad. Well, good grief, that doesn't help. But realizing I need to take control of myself. I need to make real what Jesus has already done for me by my actions, step by step. I trust that that's very pleasing to our Lord. One last seal example that I think is real good, and then I've got another one yet. I'm just full of examples here because, again, like I said, this was so important to me, and I really want you to learn it. I want us to all be very practical in our Christian lives. But his his uh, one of the last things he said, it's very important to give help and get help. He said, the people who make it through SEAL training are the guys to whom the team matters more than anything, including their own pain. Many of the guys who quit are, on the other hand, people who frankly just don't care much about that stuff. You'll be carrying a log in training that weighs a few hundred pounds, and you're carrying it with six guys for two and a half hours. Among other reasons, those who quit don't seem to feel much remorse when they duck out from behind that log and ring the bell so they can take a shower and be gone. Guys who ultimately make it would never even think about doing that, because even if they were in such dire pain, they would just never do that to your teammate, to their teammates. The application here, we are in a body, the church, and we need to remind ourselves that what we do has a great impact on others, and we're important to each other. We need to carry each other's burdens, not shoot our wounded, and never leave anyone behind.
Now, I use these stories about the seals, partly because I just really like the stories, but there are a lot of biblical precedents and similar analogies. Paul often used military analogies. He talked about fighting the good fight and putting on the whole armor of God, and he also used training ones where he said, I buffet my body, I make it my slave. You see, if anybody had a correct theology, it was Paul. But he still knew the importance of day by day fighting the old self and doing whatever he could to train himself for godliness. In the Bible, always, God does not ask us to do what only he can do. Only Jesus was able to die on the cross. Only he was able to pay the penalty of sins. But he won't do what he's commanded us to do. Now, one more one more illustration, and this one really made sense to me. Um, this is, a, again, a very personal one. My dear husband has uh, type 2 diabetes. He's he's a really big guy. He's six foot three, and he used to weigh almost 300 pounds, but he's very muscular, and I, I think he's, he's really good looking. But he was at a very bad weight for his blood sugar. And the doctor told him that if he didn't lose weight this time, now he's told him again and again and again, and he thinks it's really cute to have candy bars in his pocket that I only find when I do the laundry um, and because I try to cook healthy at home and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, the doctor said, okay, if you don't get it under control, if you don't lose some weight, you're going to have to start taking insulin. That scared him. Somehow that got to him. So we go to see the dietician that we'd been told to see quite a while ago. But we went to see this medical dietician. And he was put on a very strict, for two weeks, and then a lot of other things after that, liquids-only diet. Now, they call them shakes, but I'm not going to use that word. That's a real stretch. And to be a supportive wife, and honestly, I need to get my weight down also, I'm doing it with him. Now, it's been two weeks, and he's down 20-some pounds. We still have a long way to go, but um, we are going to do a little bit more, uh, a little bit more of a mixed plan, and we're going to be doing Weight Watchers, and we're going to be doing all this stuff. But we're committed now to this diet, and I was doing this lesson, particularly the two-week thing, because that has been really drastic. I mean, it's it's been huge, and it's been really tough. I thought, what a great analogy it is, because you see, we couldn't have done it on our own. Somebody had to come up with this particular formula where they make these drinks. Again, I'm, I'm not calling them shakes. These high-protein liquid meals. Somebody had to create it. They had to balance all the vitamins and all this kind of stuff together because I hate to admit it, but you do actually feel quite good on it and you really don't get that hungry. Um, somebody had to create it. They had to balance it. They had to produce it. They had to package it. We couldn't do that. We could only accept what they did. But we couldn't just keep that mixture sitting on the shelf or take a shake part of the time and burgers and fries the rest of the time. We had to follow the plan. We had to make decisions ahead. I cleaned out the entire refrigerator, my cupboards. I gave away tons of stuff. Um, no eating out. We told our friends, our class at church, uh, it, nearing the end of the first week, we were ready to cave in. And I said, oh, sweetie, we just can't do it because we got to go to our Sunday school class on Sunday. And, and we, we have to make it through Sunday. And and so we did. And, and, and that was great. Um, we talked about it. We prayed about it. We strategized. We did all of these different things. But Again, we couldn't have figured out the plan. The plan was given to us, but we had to follow it. Now, 
I hope these analogies help make the theology practical. It's really helped me. I feel like, even though I've been a Christian for probably longer than most of you have been alive, um, that somehow some things really clicked for me as I was studying this passage. It helped me realize that I wasn't missing out on some mystical death to something or you know it, it always kind of bothered me am I maybe not I'm not a particularly mystical emotional person you know I'm just I'm just not um and I'm much more cerebral and that kind of thing and so I kept thinking yeah maybe I was maybe I just didn't get it somehow but I've realized no that isn't true I have to take responsibility for my spiritual life, but I also know that nothing will happen without God's grace and what He's already done for us. Paul kind of sums it up this way. He says, I speak this way using the illustration of slaves and masters because it's easy to understand. Just as you used to be slaves to all kinds of sin, so now you must let yourselves be slaves to what is right and holy. Being a slave to something isn't easy, as I hope I've shown you it's work. But there's no better way to live. Anybody that has a good marriage will tell you that all the work is worth the effort. Anyone who's lost a significant amount of weight and is able to get off insulin and high blood pressure medication, and I'm praying for that, for my husband that will we'll make it, that will do that, I know it'll be worth it. Any SEAL who suffers through the initial training and the ongoing challenges is incredibly proud to serve his country in the very best way also. Now, all of these goals were achieved determination and work and to maintain them is continuing ongoing work and you see we will all need to keep working on these things until the day that we meet the Lord face to face but it is so worth it the joy that we have each day knowing that we're living a life pleasing to him and when we see him face to face and the end of the passage really sums this up in sort of a brutal way it says for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The message expands it by saying, But now, you found that you don't have to listen to sin tell you what to do, and have discovered the delight of listening to God telling you. What a surprise! A whole, healed, put-together life right now, with more and more life on the way. Work hard for sin your whole life, and your pension is death. But God's gift is real life eternal life delivered by Jesus our master the choice is yours it's kind of like when the children of Israel came out of Egypt God gave them his laws and promised life and blessings if they obeyed but judgment and punishment if they sinned it's the same for us God saved us we can have a life leading to sin and death even though we might have eternal life but it's a miserable way to live or we can have that abundant life in Christ now and forever. And like the Old Testament prophets, I want to give you the same challenge. Choose life. That's all for now. Please check out the notes for this lesson. They're in downloadable PDF format at www.bible805.com. And please do subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the Through the Bible podcasts. It's so important that you understand the whole Bible. Again, that is your Lord talking to you. If you want to know what he wants you to do, if you want to know how to live, how he wants you to live, you've got to read the Bible. And trust me, you will never understand 
understand it as well as you should unless you read it in chronological order and understand the entire message. Please let your friends know so that they too can be encouraged as they learn more about God. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are love, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.